1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Hello
2: and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 83, 84, 85 and 86 of The Da Vinci Code. Where we left off, T-Bing got his dame Maggie Smith on and he acted his way out of a police incident at the Biggin Hill Airport. And the chief inspector of the Kent local police, he was like, okay, dame Maggie, go on through. So they, (laughs) they escaped that little roadblock and they're on their way to the temple church because that's where they think they'll find some orb that's missing from someone's tomb and that will give them the clue to the riddle. So let's get into this chapter. So chapter eighty-three starts with Langdon looking at his Mickey Mouse wristwatch, and it's almost seven thirty by the time they're rocking up to this temple church. And it says well, it says the threesome wound through a maze of buildings to a small courtyard outside the temple church. I don't know if I'm comfortable referring to them as a threesome. I think he could say trio quite easily, but no he's saying threesome for some reason. So then we get a whole big paragraph about the church. Oh, so much history. Its whole point of difference is that it's circular. It survived eight centuries of political turmoil, the Great Fire of London, the First World War, and then it got a bit damaged during World War II. All relevant information for us. And so then Teabing, he says, oh, by the way, it's early on a Saturday, so we probably won't be interrupted, which is just like, I don't think a natural line of dialogue for him to tell the other two members of the, of the trio, but that's for us, that's for our benefit. So they get to the front door, but there's this sign saying that it's not open for another few hours. And so t just like, well, that's not gonna stop me. And he tries to open the door, but it doesn't budge, so it does stop him. And then he's putting his ear to the wood to try and listen through this heavy door to hear if anyone's inside. Well, just knock. (laughs) What the? (sighs) And he says, Robert, check the service schedule, will you? Who is presiding this week? So then we cut to my new favorite character, the altar boy. (laughs) he doesn't get a name. (laughs) It's so funny to me. We will hear every brand of every appliance and vehicle and gun. We will get the name of some rando guy at the Biggin Hill Airport. We get the name of some random night watchman at the bank. We're always getting backstory on backstory with detail crammed into detail. But here it's just an altar boy, an unnamed altar boy. And we're with him for a large chunk of time. But okay, so inside the church, an altar boy's almost finished vacuuming. Poor bastard. It's Saturday morning. It's only just hit 7.30 and he's vacuuming up the church. He deserves to go to heaven. I mean, I don't even know if I believe in heaven or hell, but I know he deserves to be in heaven because that's tough for a kid, isn't it? Saturday morning, he should be watching cartoons, but here he is vacuuming the communion kneelers. Oh, and then he's got to put up with tea being at the door again. Again, trying on his day, Maggie Smith. Oh, so the door's knocking and he's ignoring it. This unnamed altar boy's like, nah, if that's Father Harvey, he'll be able to get in. He has his own pair of keys. Although like, clearly this person doesn't have a pair of keys, so it's not Father Harvey. And maybe it is Father Harvey and he's lost his keys. Maybe you should open the door, but he's he's ignoring it. He's like, it's probably a few tourists. So we just kept vacuuming, la-dee-dee, la de da But then the knocking kept going on and he was like, geez Louise. So he marches to the door, he opens it. He's pissed off. He's just trying to vacuum in peace. And three people are there in the entryway and he's like, oh, tourists. A trio, a trio, a threesome of tourists. And he says, look guys, we open at 9.30. And so then it says... Because we're in this altar boy's perspective now. The heavy set man, apparently the leader, stepped forward using metal crutches. I didn't realize Sir Lee was heavy set, but here we are. So, Dame Maggie, he's saying, as you are no doubt aware, I'm escorting Mr. and Mrs. Christopher Wren, the fourth. And he stepped aside, flourishing towards the attractive couple behind him. I didn't realize Sophie and Langdon were attractive. I sort of got the vibe that Sophie was, but I, I thought. I thought Langdon was an old fuddy-duddy stuffy. But no, apparently he's a hunk, according to this altar boy. But the altar boy also thinks the man was tall, dark-haired, and looked vaguely familiar. Ooh. Probably because of all that mumbo-jumbo that Langdon was up to in Angels and Demons. I believe an altar boy in London would have followed that story quite closely. And so the altar boy, He's all up on the history of the temple church. And he's like, oh, so Christopher Wren, that was the temple church's most famous benefactor. And he'd also been dead since the 18th century. So he's like, what? Uh, Honour to meet you. I think that's him being sarcastic. Like, I know you're meant to be dead. And so the heavyset man on crutches, he's like, good thing you're not in sales, young man. Where is Father Knowles? And he goes, it's Saturday. He's not due until later. And so the crippled man, his scowl deepens. So the unnamed altar boy, even though we're in his perspective, we're getting his perspective on whether or not Lee is heavy set or crippled and whether the couple are attractive. And we've got his knowledge about Sir Christopher Wren, but we don't have his name. So the altar boy, he's like blocking the doorway. And he's like, uh, what are you guys talking about? And so Dame Maggie, he says, young man, apparently you're new here. Every year, Sir Christopher Wren's descendants bring a pinch of the old man's ashes to scatter in the temple sanctuary. It's part of his last will and testament. What? This guy's been dead for centuries and there's still little morsels of him being scattered each year. What? Just do it all in one go, Sir Christopher Wren. I know that's not a real story, but it's just so far-fetched. And the altar boy's thinking, I've been here a few years and I've never heard of this. And he says, why don't you wait till 9.30? I've not yet finished hoovering. And I'm thinking, yeah, even if this guy's plan was to scatter the ashes in the church, this altar boy is gonna vacuum it up, anyway. So, <laughs> I don't really think that's the best way to dispose of human remains. And so the heavyset guy's like, "Young man, the only reason there's anything left of this building for you to Hoover is on account of the gentleman in that woman's pocket." And he's like, "Why?" And so then Sophie, she's like, "Uh, yeah," and she pulls out the cryptex, pretending that that's like an urn. <laughs> this is bizarre. And so she just whips out the cryptex, and then Dame Maggie says, "There, you see." And it's like, what? Well, no, that doesn't prove anything. He goes, you see, now you can either grant his dying wish and let us sprinkle his ashes in the sanctuary, or I tell Father Knowles how we've been treated. Like, I don't get this. Teabing's been bribing people left and right. And now to this poor little altar boy, you can't even offer him like five grand. Just give him five grand. Give him 50 pound. Give him a 50 pounder. And I'm sure he'll be like, all right, come on in. Like, I don't know why you got to grill this kid and gaslight him. And now you're threatening his job. And I don't even know if an altar boy pays well. I don't know if it's a paid position or not, but you're threatening him. And I just don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. But it's hit the right spot because now he's thinking, oh no, Father Knowles, he's got a bad temper. Oh, and because that's what you want in a priest, someone with a foul temper. He's like, maybe he forgot to tell me that these people were coming. I don't want to hurt the reputation of the church. There's a lot of responsibility on this kid's shoulders. And he thinks, ah, oh, well, maybe, maybe there'll be more harm in turning them away than letting them in. After all, they said it would only take a minute. What harm could it do? I mean, they could be terrorists. Like, did you ever think about that unnamed altar boy? That cryptex in a pocket could be a bomb. So the altar boy steps aside, he lets the threesome pass and he's like, hmm, Mr. and Mrs. Wren seem just as confused as I am. Ah, oh, well, back to vacuuming. And so then we cut back to Langdon's perspective and Langdon's like, Lee, you lie entirely too well. And T-Bing's like, little do you fucking know. Oh, and he tells the funniest story. He says, Oxford Theater Club. They still talk of my Julius Caesar. I'm certain nobody has ever performed the first scene of act three with more dedication. And Langdon's like, wait a minute. I thought Caesar was dead in that scene. And t says, yeah, but my toga tore open when I fell and I had to lie on stage for half an hour with my todger hanging out. Even so, I never moved a muscle. I was brilliant, I tell you. <laughs> His todger was hanging out the whole show. I mean, that's that's fantastic. I've told Dan before to, you know, cut it with the humour, but th- that one made me laugh. And Langdon's thinking, oh, sorry, I missed it. <laughs> uh, okay, I wouldn't be sorry to have missed that. I don't want to see T-Bing's todger. Like, I'm sorry. No. So they move through the church. We get more description of the fucking church. And Langdon's like, wow, I'm surprised by how it looks. And I'm like, I thought you studied this bitch. Like you, ah, why would anyone buy your books on these subjects? Because you don't know anything. And Sophie's like, wow, it looks like a fortress. And t like, yeah, well, it was the Knights Templar were warriors. The churches were their strongholds and their banks. And Sophie's like, what? Banks? And he's like, yep. The Templars invented the concept of modern banking. What did they? I don't care. He just says that they'd store people's gold in one church and then they could pick it up at a different church as long as they had documentation. And he goes, yep, they were the original ATMs. And here's where the humor just dives off of a cliff once again. He had me with T-Bing's Todger hanging out in Julius Caesar, but now you've lost me with a joke about ATMs. So then they find the 10 stone knights and they're like lying on the floor and they're like a life-sized figure made out of stone. And Langdon's like, oh my God, this is it. This has to be the place. Well, it's not the place. So then that's that chapter. So we go to chapter 84 and we're with the manservant Remy. He's in the alleyway hanging out near the outside of the temple church. So he's just parked the limo. He gets out, he walks out the back and then he climbs back into the back seat of the limo where Silas is. And it says, sensing Remy's presence, the monk in the back emerged from a prayer-like trance. Okay, sensing his presence, he just opened the car door and got in. Like that's not exactly subtle. You don't need to sense a presence for that. So Remy pulls himself a couple of vodkas from the minibar. He's like, I'm off the clock. Let me enjoy my day. And he thinks soon I will be a man of leisure. So then he finds a wine opener, which, okay, it's a standard service wine opener with a blade. I don't know what type of wine openers they have. Mine don't have blades, but it's got a a, a freaking knife on it. And he says this knife usually employed to slice the lead foil from corks on fine bottles of wine would serve a far more dramatic purpose this morning. <laughs> this must be a huge fucking knife because Silas, he's terrified. His, his face is flashing with fear. He's like, oh no, don't come at me with that big giant knife. So Remy's moving towards him with the tiny little knife. Silas is like, oh no, God's forsaken me. I've been praying all night for liberation and it didn't work. Oh, rats. And Remy's just cutting the tapes off, but Dan Brown tries to do a bait and switch because Silas is like, ah, the pain, my body's on fire, everything hurts. But then Remy's like, it's just your circulation. He says, the pain you feel is the blood rushing into your muscles. And so we're like, why, he's not dying? And Remy's pouring him a drink. He's like, I have a drink, that'll help. So Silas is just knocking back a little bottle of vodka as well. I didn't take Silas for a drinker, but here he is. And he's like, yes, God has not forsaken me. It's divine intervention. And so the manservant, who is still being referred to as the manservant, he says, I wanted to free you earlier, but it was impossible. With the police arriving at Chateau Vallette and then at Biggin Hill Airport, this was the first possible moment. You understand? You get that, right, Silas? And Silas is like, how do you know my name? And he's like, of course I know your name. And Silas is like, are you the teacher? And he's like, "Mm, no. He goes, I wish. He says, I'm not the teacher, but like you, I serve him. But the teacher speaks highly of you. My name's Remy. And Silas is like, oh, that's great. I'm still going to refer to you as the manservant. And Silas is like, help me out here. Let's dial it back a bit. If you work for the teacher, why did Langdon bring the Keystone to your home? And he's like, not my home. It's the home of the world's most famous Grail historian. And Silas, God bless him. He really didn't get an education, did he? (laughs) Because he's so stupid. He says. But you live there. God, what are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds that a servant of the teacher would live with this grail historian, Lee Tebing? By what stance? And Remy's like, guy, come on. He's like, really? He says, Robert Langdon being in possession of the keystone, he needed help. What more logical place to run than the home of Lee Tebing? And that I just happened to live there? I mean, what do you think that's about? How do you think the teacher knows so much about the grail? And then Silas was stunned. He was like, oh my God, you're a plant. He's like, holy shit, I never knew. Would never have guessed. He's thinking the teacher recruited a servant who had access to all of Sir Lee Teabing's research. It was brilliant. Now, sidebar, we know Teabing's the villain, right? But I don't know if Remy knows that Teabing is the teacher or if he's playing dumb at this point in time and just not wanting Silas to know that T-Bing's the teacher. I don't know why that would be the case. The only reason T-Bing wouldn't tell Remy, his manservant, that he's the teacher and that he's spying on himself, uh, (laughs) the only reason he wouldn't do that is so that Dan Brown could pull the wool over our eyes. So I I think that's what's happening here. Because why else would T-Bing hire someone to spy on himself and report back on what T-Bing's doing? unless T-Bing knew he was a character in a Dan Brown book and he had to act it logically. That's the only reason I can see for that. But back to the plot. So Remy's like, here, Silas, have this Heckler Kosh pistol. Again, every gun needs a brand name for some reason. He says, have this pistol, you've got a job to do. And then we cut to Captain Fash and he's at the Biggin Hill Airport and he is shonked at the Kent chief inspector, the unnamed Kent chief inspector, just letting the threesome go. And the guy's like, well, I searched the plane myself. Like no one was there. And Fash is like, well, did you interrogate the pilot? And he's like, no, of course not. He's French. That's out of our jurisdiction. Uh, and yet you've been acting under the orders of the Parisian police. So I don't know what's in your jurisdiction. So Fash is like, well, fuck it. I'll interrogate him. So Fash knocks on the pilot's door and he says, this is the captain of the French judicial police. Open the door. And if I were the captain, I'd be like, okay, go back to France then. I'm an England motherfucker, but then he must go and interrogate the pilot because it says three minutes later, with the help of his sidearm, he had a full confession. What? He, he got a full, did, did he torture this guy? What do you mean with the help of his sidearm? I don't think you could just like threaten to shoot someone to get information. Uh, is that how police work works? And so the pilot had also told him about the monk, about the cryptex in the wall safe of the plane. And so Fash was like, well, tell me about this wall safe. Can we open it up? And he's like, nah, I can't. I don't know the combination. And the pilot did say, I don't know what's in the box, but it had been the focus of Langdon's full attention during the flight to London. How does the pilot know that? Was he not staring out the window driving the fucking plane? Like, or was he just focused on what Langdon was focusing on the whole time? How does, how does he know this? And Fash is like, well, it's too bad you don't know the combination because I was going to offer to let you keep your pilot's license. Why does, why does he have any say over it? Oh, I guess it's a French pilot. I don't know. The legalities of jurisdictions, it's too much. It's beyond me. Anyway, so the pilot's gonna get some maintenance men over to drill it open. And so then Fash, he goes to the back of the plane and he pours himself a drink. Another guy drinking on the job. I don't know if you can be a policeman and be actively drinking while you're on the clock. He goes, I know it's early, but I've been up for so long. It hardly counted as drinking before noon. Yes, it does. It's also drinking on the clock. I think he's losing it. Fash has lost it. And he's blaming the Kent police, meanwhile, but I'm like, you fucked up all night long as well. And then he gets a call from Arangarossa, who's concerned, and he's like, hey, mate, I'll meet you in London. And he goes, no, I don't go to London. Come to Kent, come to Biggin Hill Airport, and I'll show you around. And Fash says, as I expressed when we first spoke, Bishop, you would do well to remember that you were not the only man on the verge of losing everything. Uh, I don't know what that, I don't know what that means. Who cares? That's the end of the chapter. Let's move on. I'm really not that interested in Bishop Arangarosa and his Vatican bail bonds or whatever that he's got. I'm
0: not that interested. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
1: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns.
2: So for chapter 85, we're back at the temple church. They're inspecting the carved knights in stone, trying to find an orb. And Sophie, she felt a chill because the poem's reference to an orb conjured images of her knight in her grandfather's basement. Okay. I get that a few of the people in the basement were holding orbs like, yeah, all right. But you're thinking about your granddad's sex session quite a lot. It just, everything reminds her of her granddad getting railed. So then she's musing about the sex ritual that Langdon told her about. She's still mulling that one over trying to process that, but (laughs) she can't get there. And then she's like, oh yeah, I've got to look at the nights. So she's looking at the nights. She's not finding any orbs. And all of them sort of look the same. They're in different positions. They're holding different weapons and stuff, but she's not seeing anything. But then she sees the 10th and final tomb and she's like, oh, this one's different. There's no armor. There's no sword. There's no tunic. And so she's like, Robert, Dame Maggie, get over here. There's something missing. And they're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. and T-Bing's like, oh, is it an orb? And it's like, well, mate, if it's missing, how do we know? And she's like, well, we're not really missing an orb. It's hard to know because we're, we seem to be missing a whole bloody night. So rather than a night lying in the open air, this tomb was a sealed stone casket. And Langdon, who I thought had studied this fucking temple, he says to Dame Maggie, why isn't this night shown? And then T-Bing, who I also thought was a temple expert, he's like, well, that's fascinating. I had forgotten about this oddity. What? It had been years since I was here. Yeah, but haven't you been ruminating on it for a whole flight? A whole drive from Kent to Fleet Street, weren't you thinking about this and talking about the church and you forgot about it? And you already knew about it but you forgot about it? And Sophie's like, "Okay, so why is this knight in a casket rather than out in the open?" And T-Bing, now that he's remembered it, he's an expert again. He's like, "Well, it's one of the church's mysteries. To the best of my knowledge, no one has ever found any explanation for it." And the altar boy, the unnamed altar boy, he's like, "Guys, forgive me if I sound rude, but you said you wanted to spread ashes and yet you seem to be sightseeing. Oh, I love this sassy little boy. He's calling them out. And so Dame Maggie, he's like, all right, well, geez, I guess we'll hurry up then. Hey, Mrs. Wren, winking to Sophie. He's like, how about you start spreading those ashes? And Sophie's like, oh, I mean, she's like, I don't really have ashes, but she pulls out the cryptics that I have a pocket. And she's like, I don't know, miming, spreading ashes or something. I don't know. And T-Bing goes, um, give us some privacy. Like, he still thinks that, like, it's so obvious that there's a vial of ashes in her pocket. Like, that doesn't prove shit. And the altar boy, he's like, hey, Langdon, you do look familiar. And Dame Maggie, he's like, yeah, because he's here every year spreading ashes. Fuck wit. Now rack off. And the altar boy, he says, I've actually never met Mr. Wren. And Langdon's like, no, 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 uh, he's trying to be Dame Judy Dench right now. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, we met in passing last year. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Father Knowles didn't formally introduce us, but I remember your face. And he's like, now, excuse me, I've got to go scatter these ashes. I, they keep saying scattering the ashes. How many ashes are there if this guy's been dead for 300 years and they're scattering his ashes every year? Surely they've run out by now. What's the long-term game plan here? Again, I know it's a fake story, but it just don't make a lick of sense. He's like, I got to scatter the ashes around these tombs. Okay, little boy. And then Alter Boy, without the name, he says, these aren't tombs, dummy. And Langdon's like, what? And Tebing's like, of course they're tombs. What are you talking about? Of course they're tombs. Look at them. And this Alter Boy has to school them And he says, well, actually, no, tombs contain bodies. These are just effigies. They're stone tributes. There's no real bodies. And Teben goes, but it's a crypt. We're in a crypt. And the altar boy, who has just brushed up on his history, he goes, yeah, nah, it was believed to be a crypt, but it was revealed to be nothing of the sort during the 1950 renovation. And I imagine Mr. Wren would know that, considering it was his family that uncovered the fact. He is out Langdoning Langdon. I love it. I love it. This boy, this little altar boy without the name, favorite character, honestly, given Langdon a taste of his own medicine. Although that gives me pause. Okay. They've both studied this church and it's been a while. They're like, oh, it's been a while. I don't remember it, but they've both studied it and, and never came across this little tidbit. And It was from the 1950 renovation. How old is T-Bing? If when he was last here and when he was last researching this, it it was before 1950? Is that what he's telling us? Or, as we might see later, T-Bing is up to some teacher tricks and he actually knew it was never here and it's all a red herring. I don't know why, though. I don't see how that serves him as the teacher, as the villain. I don't know how that serves his purpose, but... It's a, it's a waste of fucking time is what it is. And here I am wasting time talking about it. So let's just press on. So there's a door slamming in the annex. And so they're like, oh, that must be Father Knowles. And so Teabing, he sends the altar boy off. And then Langdon's like, what the fuck? No bodies, what the hell? And Teabing, he's like, I don't know. I don't know. I always thought, I thought this would be the place. I don't know what he's talking about. Nothing makes sense anymore. And Langdon's like, let me see the poem again even though I thought they'd all had it memorized by now. He's like, let me see the poem. And he's like, yep, it certainly says tomb, not effigy. And it's like, well, y- yeah, you read that a million different times. Did he think he'd misread? I don't I don't know. And T-Bing's like, well, could the poem be wrong? Could Jacques Saunier have made the same mistake as me? And it's like, no, mate. And T-Bing, he must be acting. t the villain, must be acting because he's like, but that's perfect. I- I'm flabbergasted. He says, maybe we missed something. Oh, Dame Maggie is out Dame Maggieing. So the altar boy, he gets to the annex and he's like, Father Niles, where you at? I've just been hoovering and dealing with some tourists. And then there's a man in a tuxedo near the doorway. And the altar boy is like, oh, no, another fucking tourist. I should have locked the door behind me. Oh, what a day. What a day. It's only 7.30 and what a day. And he goes, mate, we're closed. But then a snow white hand covers the boy's mouth. And the guy smelled of alcohol. So, yeah, Silas and Remy were doing shots in the limo, and now they stink of the juice. And so then Remy, well, the man in the tuxedo, he pulls out a gun, points it at the altar boy, and he says, Listen carefully. You will exit this church silently and you will run. You will not stop. Is that clear? And yeah, the altar boy pisses himself. There's no other way to put it. The altar boy pisses himself, the poor doll. And he goes, If you call the police, I will find you. And so the altar boy's like, Well, that's my cue. And he just runs off and leaves. And that's the end of that chapter. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's go to chapter 86. And we're with Silas, who's now stalking the threesome. So Silas is coming up behind Sophie. Oh, well, it's, it's Sophie Nouveau. I don't know why we're giving her the full name treatment, but Sophie Nouveau sensed him too late. You know what? You could just say Sophie. I don't believe there's another Sophie in that crypt. I'm not going to get my Sophies confused. It's, it's okay. So he pounces on Sophie Niveau and Sophie Niveau, she's like, ah. And so then T-Bing and Langdon, they turn around and they're like, what's going on? And T-Bing's like, hey, what did you do to Remy? (laughs) Who's fine in the other room. And Silas is like, look, don't worry about Remy. All you have to worry about is me leaving here with the keystone. And so apparently Remy, we're doing lots of time jumps here. So Remy, he had said to Silas, this is a recovery mission. Don't hurt anyone. Get into the church. Take the keystone. Walk out. No killing. No struggle. And so he's frisking Sophie, Sophie Naveau, That is. He's frisking her, trying to find the cryptex. And it says he could smell the soft fragrance of her hair through his own alcohol-laced breath. How many shots did he take? He's he's stinking of the grog, stinking of it. And so Langdon, he's like, it's over here, dum dum. And he's waving the cryptex from the other side of the room. And it says he's waving it back and forth like a matador tempting a dumb animal, which I think is rude to animals. And I don't know why you'd say a matador tempting a dumb animal. You can be specific and say a bull, like a matador is not tempting a rabbit. And Silas is like, put it down. And Langdon, he says, well, let Sophie and Lee leave first. You and I can settle this. (laughs) What's Langdon going to do? You and I, we're going to settle this. What are you going to play, fisticuffs? And Langdon's like, don't you come any closer. Not until they leave the building. And Silas is like, you're in no position to make demands here. Like, who do you think you are? And Langdon goes, I won't hesitate to smash this on the floor and break the vial inside. And Silas is like, uh, what? (laughs) He's like, that was unexpected. Is it? (laughs) Is it that unexpected? And he goes, you would never break the keystone. You want to find the grail as much as I do. And Robert's like, nah, I don't actually. You want it much more and you've proven you're willing to kill for it. Gotcha there, Silas. Although I wouldn't be taunting the guy that's holding a gun pointed at me and be like, You're willing to kill for it. He'd be like, Yes, I am, pup. <laughs> and then 40 feet away, approximately, <laughs> 40 feet away, peering out from the annex, Remy Leguludec. Okay, now we're getting his last name. <sighs> I know who Remy is. How many Remy's are we running into in London? I, uh, so Remy Leguludec. He felt a rising alarm because he's like, Oh, rot ro, Langdon's gonna sacrifice the cryptex. I don't know how to handle this because the teacher had ordered me to order Silas not to fire his gun. And then he's like, Oh shit, I hope Silas doesn't shoot him anyway because then the cryptex is gonna fall. It's all going to shit. And then we get a little bit of backstory on Remy, Remy Legoludec, not Remy the ratatouille rat. So he says, The Cryptex was to be Remy's ticket to freedom and wealth. A little over a year ago, he was simply a 55-year-old manservant. (laughs) He's even referring to himself as a manservant. Catering to the whims of the insufferable cripple Sir Lee Teabing. Okay, I don't think he knows that Teabing's the teacher. Because why would you call him insufferable cripple? I mean, that's mean anyway, but yeah. So then he was approached with an extraordinary proposition. Remy's association with Sir Lee was going to bring Remy everything he had ever dreamed in his life. So yet, yeah, T-Bing hired Remy and then hired him again to spy on T-Bing. Like, is any of that tracking? And how did he do that if Remy doesn't know that T-Bing is the teacher? Was this all through like MSN Messenger or something? No, no. Then he says he can't show his face because it was something the teacher had strictly forbidden. Remy was the only one who knew the teacher's identity. So he knows that t the teacher. Uh, what, what is going on in Remy's mind? On a first read of this book, you don't pick up on this many inconsistencies, but knowing that t the teacher, uh, this does not make any sense. Although it also is kind of obvious. Because apparently Remy had asked the teacher less than half an hour ago, are you certain you want Silas to carry out this task? And that was when they were in the limo having a chat about directions, I assume. And the teacher was all like, no, you must remain anonymous. If others see you, they will need to be eliminated. And there has been enough killing already. Don't reveal your face. Uh, Whatever. But Remy's like, ah, I'll just get surgery and change my face. I'll burn off my fingertips. I'll do whatever with the money that I'm going to get. I'll be beautiful and unrecognisable soaking up the sun on the beach. And then the teacher goes, for your own knowledge, Remy, the tomb in question is not in the temple church. So have no fear. They are looking in the wrong place. So why did T-Bing do this? So what, did Teabing come up with a fake church? Uh, I'm so dumb putting it all together now. So Teabing came up with this fake idea to go to this shitty church just to contrive this moment to take the cryptex. That's what he did. Okay. Oh, Dan Brown, you're a genius. You fooled me. <laughs> I'm really struggling to keep up with this one. And he says, Remy, if the others figure out the true location of the tomb and leave the church before you take the cryptex, we could lose the grail forever. I mean, fuck me dead. At this point, with the two doo-doo-dum-dum brains in the back seat of the limo, and if you know where the right tomb is, why don't you just shoot them? I would have killed them on the plane. You don't need them. If you want the cryptex, just kill them. And then it says, Remy didn't give a damn about the grail, except that the teacher refused to pay him until it was found, which is a bit frustrating. If I'm going on a grail quest, I want the money up front. But it says Remy felt giddy every time he thought about the money he would soon have—one third of twenty million euro. Plenty to disappear forever. And then he's picturing himself on the beach again with the facial surgery. Okay, but okay, one third of twenty million euro. What? Why you got to say a third? Can you not just say six point six million? Like, who are you going? Who are you going thirds with? Uh, and also, when when you do the math and you figure out it's just six point six million. Yeah, that's a lot, but it doesn't seem like enough for facial surgery and fingerprint burning and, and then also living on a beach in the Côte d'Azur. Like, I don't know if six million euro gets you that much these days. So now we're back in the temple church, we're back in the present and Remy's made the decision, Remy Leguladec, that is, he's made the decision to take bold action. So the gun in his hand is a small caliber, J-frame Medusa. Okay, I, that's great to know. Thanks for telling me the brand names of guns. Do guns have brand names? I don't know. But he's got the gun now. So he steps out from the shadows and he's like, old man, I've been waiting a long time to do this. And the guns pointed at Teabing. So I guess he's Dame Helen Mirren. And now he's acting because he knows Teabing's the teacher, but he's threatening his life. Oh. And Teabing, he's flustered. And we get his inner monologue where he thinks, what is he doing? And yeah, on a first read you're thinking, Oh yeah, of course he's shocked. But no, he's shocked because he told him to stay in the shadows. Oh so many layers. This book, it's genius. And T recognised the tiny Medusa revolver as his own. <laughs> okay. And he's like, Remy, what's going on? He's all dumbstruck. So Remy, he gets the gun pointed at Teebing, and he says, Stop or I'll shoot the old codger who had got his Todger out during Julius Caesar. I'll shoot him. And Langdon He's like, what the fuck? Why do you want the keystone? It's worthless to you. You can't possibly open it, which I think is a bit offensive. Just because he's a manservant doesn't mean that he doesn't have knowledge about knights and popes interring knights and fruity wombs with seeds in it. Like he could know things. And he says, arrogant fools, have you not noticed that I've been listening tonight as you discussed these poems? I don't really know if that's something you need to notice. He goes, everything I heard I have shared with others. (gasps) Others who know more than you. (gasps) You were not even looking in the right place. (gasps) The tomb you seek is in another location entirely. (gasps) Well, he really dropped the bag on that one. That was meant to be a big secret. And Teabing, he's thinking, what the fuck, dude? Shut up. And Langdon's like, Remy, manservant, what do you even want the grail for? And so Remy goes, hey, Silas, go get the cryptex. And Langdon, he says, I'd rather break it than see it in the wrong hands. And then Tebing's thinking, oh, fuck, am I going to (laughs) die? He's thinking, oh, shit. Is my little manservant going to shoot me? So then Remy shoots the ceiling and he's like, I'm not playing games here, guys. The next one's going in his back. Hand the keystone to Silas. And Langdon's like, okay, here it is. So Silas scoops up that cryptex, puts it in his robe, and he's like, I'm out of and Langdon says, let t go. And Remy, Dame Helen Mirren Remy, he's like, "Nah, nope, I'm taking t for a drive. If you call the police, he will die. If you do anything to interfere, he will die. Okay, so that was the plan all along. Actually, quite a great plan, Lee. <laughs> you got me. You, you bloody fooled me. Here I was thinking they're idiots, but now they're actually one step ahead. So they start to leave dragging t behind them. And Sophie's like, who are you working for? God, she was, she has been quiet, hasn't she? She finally piped up. She goes, who are you working for? And Remy's like, oh, you'd be surprised, Mademoiselle Nouveau. <laughs> we know her last name's Nouveau. And that's the end of the chapter. I do think Remy needs a bit more game face. Like I know he wants a new face, but don't be telling the enemy everything. And also just shoot him. Anyway, so I'll leave it there. As always, ratings and reviews are super appreciated and you can head over to the Instagram and the Twitter and all that crap. And you can go to patreon.com slash breaking down bad books to get access to the exclusive feed. And we're in the midst of 50 Shades Freed at the Mo. Christian just erotically shaved Anna. So that was... That was fun to read about. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with quins.